we have begun a new series focused on the Sermon on the Mount, which is the greatest sermon ever told and the most important sermon you will ever hear. We've been saying that the Sermon on the Mount reveals God's whole new way of being human. This is Jesus' vision for the good life. And that's what we all want to know. We want to know how can we experience true, lasting happiness. And here Jesus lays out how to thrive and flourish as human beings from God's perspective. But if we stop and think about it, we would probably say, if anyone other than Jesus said this, we would probably think that he was insane. And that's especially true when it comes to the passage that is before us today. Some commentators describe this passage as among the most difficult in the whole Bible. So what we'd like to do today is ask this question. As we consider the Sermon on the Mount, is the Sermon on the Mount humanly possible? Is it realistic? I mean, honestly, is it practical? Is it practicable to live the Sermon on the Mount. And as we explore that question, we will discover that not only is there a right and a wrong way to read the Sermon on the Mount, but there's a right way and a wrong way to read the Bible as a whole. So do you want to know what it is? Well, here it is. It's laid out for us in this passage. So during our time together today, I'd like us to discover three things that unlock not only the Sermon on the Mount, but all of Scripture. So there's three things I'd like to show you. First of all, I'd like to show you the shocking alternative when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount. Second of all, I want to show you the maximal demand when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount. And then thirdly, I want to show you the hidden promise within the Sermon on the Mount. So if you would, let me invite you to open up a Bible to Matthew chapter 5. You'll find our passage printed beginning on page 810 in the Pew Bibles. It's also printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Will you join me in a brief word of prayer? Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, these words would remain nothing more than letters on a page. And so we pray that by your grace, the very same spirit that once inspired these words might illuminate them now for us, so that Jesus' words might catch fire and burn within our hearts, leading us to a real living encounter with him. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing that I would like to show you is the shocking alternative when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount. In order to do that, let me tell you a little story about Thomas Jefferson. In 1820, Thomas Jefferson completed a project that had been on his mind for about two decades. He gathered together different translations of the Bible in English, French, Greek, and Latin, and then he proceeded to take a knife 
to the New Testament. With a razor and glue, he cut out all those verses that he thought captured the authentic teaching of Jesus, and then he pasted those verses on blank sheets of paper, and he created his own book, which he named The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. We know it as the Jefferson Bible. And as you can imagine, the Sermon on the Mount appears prominently in the Jefferson Bible. But what did he leave out? Well, he left out any reference to the miraculous or the supernatural, and that required some careful cutting. Sometimes he would cut Jesus off mid-sentence. Or if a moral lesson was embedded in a miraculous story, well, guess what? The lesson made it into the Jefferson Bible, but the miracle did not. He once wrote a letter to John Adams explaining that he was trying to separate the diamonds from the dunghill. Everything else for Jefferson was just manure. But he explained that what would remain was the most sublime moral teaching that had ever been offered to human beings. Now, I would suggest that that's the way that a lot of modern people today approach the Bible. In the past, people may have believed that the Bible was God's word, that it came to us from on high, that it carries God's authority. But we would say, as modern people, we can't accept that anymore. We, we've grown up. We've given up childish ways. We, we've moved past these superstitious beliefs. As our knowledge increases and our understanding of the world expands, we know that these were merely human authors, that God couldn't possibly be speaking through them. So we might say that the Bible is inspiring, but it's not inspired. It's inspiring, but it's not breathed out by God. We might say that the authors of the Bible were especially in touch with the divine, and therefore they spoke with poetic insight into life, into how life works. So the Bible's inspiring but not inspired, and because of that, we can cut out all that supernatural gobbledygook, and we can just focus on the teaching because it's the teaching that is sublime. Now, if that's the way that you think about the Bible, I get it. I understand it. I've heard that before. That's nothing new. But in response, I want to ask, have you actually read Jesus' teaching? If that's what you think, have you actually read it? Have you actually listened to it? Is Jesus' teaching sublime or is it terrifying? A number of years ago, there was a college professor named Virginia Stem Owens who assigned the Sermon on the Mount to her freshman English class. She asked the students to read the Sermon on the Mount in the King James Version and then write an essay response. And as she started reading these students' essays, she was, she was quite surprised uh, by the, the ways in which they responded to it. She expected most of her students to be at least somewhat familiar with the Sermon on the Mount and to give at least nodding approval to Jesus' words. But nope, that's not what happened. Number one, they were not familiar with the Sermon on the Mount at all. Number two, they hated it. They hated it. Here are some of the responses. The first one is my favorite. I did not like the essay, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Sounds like a college freshman, doesn't it? Here's the second one. The things asked in this sermon are absurd. 
to look at a woman as adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I've ever heard. And here's a third. In this essay, the author explains the doctrines of an era in the past which cannot be brought into the future in the same context. This essay now cannot be taken the same way it was written. It can be used as a guideline for good manners. Virginia Stem Owens responds to this by saying, good manners? Was this all that remained of the old-fashioned piety I had expected? The Sermon on the Mount reduced to suggestions by Emily Post. Now, what did she make of these essay responses? Now, in an odd way, in an odd way, she found them strangely encouraging because she says, biblical illiteracy in our culture has now reached the point where people can actually hear Jesus' shocking words for what they actually are, rather than trying to domesticate Jesus' words through cultural familiarity or through cultural associations. She says, honest, ignorant ears. I love that expression. Honest, ignorant ears can finally hear the Sermon on the Mount for what it is, and they hated it. They hated it. And I would argue that these students are actually in a far better place than most churched people. Those students are in a much better place than many of us sitting here today because they are actually hearing Jesus' words with all their shock value. Whereas we do try to domesticate what Jesus has said through our familiarity with some of those words. Now, I don't mean any disrespect. But if you blithely try to dismiss Jesus' words as nothing more than sublime moral teaching, you're not listening. You're not paying attention. If you are listening, the Sermon on the Mount, it should make you angry. The Sermon on the Mount should make you angry. It should shock you. It should offend you. But that's how you know that you're dealing with Jesus and not a fictitious person of your own imagining. And let me tell you why this is so important. If Jesus' words don't shock you, if they don't offend you, if you think that he is merely offering sublime moral teaching just like everybody else, then Jesus has nothing new to offer. He's nothing, he has nothing different to offer you than Confucius or Buddha or Socrates or Plato, and therefore, why listen to him? Who cares? Look, everyone else, everyone else, is basically telling you what to do. They're giving you advice about how to be happy based on what this world alone has to offer. But what makes Jesus' words so outrageous is he's telling you that you cannot be happy, you cannot thrive and flourish based on what this world alone has to offer. But the good news is that God's world, God's new world is crashing into this one. And the only way that we become our truest selves, the only way that we will truly flourish is by entering God's world, by becoming part of his kingdom. And so when you take Jesus' word into your life, when you experience the presence and the power of God for yourself, it changes you from the inside out. So do you see the difference here? We might say, well, I like the teaching. I like the moral teaching of Jesus, and I'm just going to cut out all the supernatural stuff. But don't you realize Jesus' teaching doesn't make any sense apart from the supernatural stuff. And the only way you will become the truest version of yourself, the person that God has always 
destined you to be is if you take Jesus and that supernatural world into your heart and into your life, don't try to domesticate it, but rather let those words transform you. Don't try to strip them of their power. So you see, that is the shocking alternative. Either Jesus is offering mere guidelines, which might be helpful in terms of good manners, or he's speaking a supernatural word. He's speaking a word from God, from God's perspective, the only perspective that really matters. And if you take it into your heart and your life, it'll change you forever. That's the shocking alternative. But if if that weren't challenging enough, Jesus then goes on to tighten the screw. He ratchets up the intensity. And my challenge today is to try to help you feel the shock that Jesus' original audience would have felt, especially by the time he gets to verse 20. You have to feel this tension. And if you don't feel the tension, then you're not paying attention. Because his words in this passage should, if you're listening, bring you to the very brink of despair. They really should. So the second thing that I want to show you is Jesus' maximal demand. Rather than minimizing God's standards, Jesus maximizes them. He maximizes them. And that is where the challenge lies. So very quickly, I want to look at each of these four verses in turn very briefly to see how he builds the tension. See, first of all, verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, the law and the prophets was a shorthand way of referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. This is a way of referring to the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures. The law referred to the first five books of the Bible, also known as the five books of Moses, or the law of Moses. But If you read those first five books, Genesis to Deuteronomy, you realize that it's not filled with law in the terms of rules and regulations or a list of do's and don'ts. There's a lot of narrative there, but through that narrative, through that law, God gives instruction in how we're supposed to live our lives. And then the prophets refer to everything else. So the law and the prophets refers to the entirety of the Old Testament, the Bible as Jesus knew it. But look, if we were going to be honest for a minute, if we were going to be honest, you and I probably would say, well, I kind of wish Jesus did abolish the Old Testament. Now look, this can be personal, so I won't speak for you. I'll just speak for myself. When I first started reading the Bible, I thought, what is going on in the Old Testament? The Old Testament was a little hard to swallow. It's filled with these fantastical stories. And it seemed to me, at least at first blush, that the God that is revealed in the Old Testament is a God of wrath and judgment, but the God of the New Testament is revealed as a God of love and mercy. That was what I thought at first. But then the more time I spent with the Scriptures, I realized, well, actually, there's a lot of wrath and judgment in the New Testament, and there's plenty of love and mercy in the Old, so things aren't quite that simple. But nevertheless, we probably would say, well, why, why can't Jesus just abolish the Old Testament? Why can't we just emphasize the new but see the thing that we need to remember is that the hebrew scriptures the old testament that was jesus's bible in fact that was jesus's entire library i don't know about you but if i go to somebody's apartment i like to sort of glance at their bookshelf maybe that tells you something about me but i i I sort of think like well if you look at what's on somebody's bookshelf you can tell a lot 
about who they are, about what they care about, what, what's important to them. But do you realize that the Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, the 39 books of the Old Testament, that was not just Jesus' favorite book, it was his favorite library. That was his entire library. These are the books that he knew and loved. These are the books that he studied and that he memorized. These are the books that he savored and that he drew upon, not only in hard times, but in the best of times. This was the book that fueled his imagination. This is the book upon which he based his entire life. And he says that he has come not to abolish them, no, but to fulfill them. And in fact, he says, he affirms not only every word in the Hebrew Scriptures, but he affirms every letter right down to the smallest stroke. So he goes on to say in verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In the old King James Version, he says, Not a jot, not a tittle, will pass from the law. What does that mean? What's a jot? Well, a jot was the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's a yod. It looks like a little apostrophe in English. Smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And what's a tittle? Well, a tittle was a tiny little serif that you might add to a letter. It, it, it'd be the little, little line that you'd draw at the base of a larger stroke, like a capital A. It's a little flourish. And Jesus says that he's affirming not only every word in the Hebrew Scriptures, he's affirming every letter down to the smallest little point. All of it, he says, counts. None of it will pass away. All of it matters. You know, people talk about picking and choosing the parts of the Bible that they like, affirming those and ignoring all the rest. But no, that's not what Jesus does. Jesus treats every word, whether it's coming from Moses or Malachi or Jonah or Ezekiel, as straight from God's mouth. He believes that God has superintended over the hu human authors so that whatever Scripture says, God says. It's straight from God's mouth to our ears. But then there's more. Verse 19, he says, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but those who do it and teach it will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, what does it mean to relax a commandment? What would that mean? To relax a commandment basically means to lower the bar. You lower the bar and then it's easier to jump over. But you know what often happens when you do that? If, if you relax a, a standard, if you lower the bar to make it easier to jump over, then it's very easy to become quite smug. You become rather self-righteous. You start looking down your nose at people who aren't able to jump that bar. But what are you boasting about? You just lowered it. But that's often what happens. And here's a, a classic example of this. It, it comes up in the Sermon on the Mount itself. A lot of people would say, well, as it relates to my relationship with God, let's be honest. There's, there's good things that I've done in my life and there's bad things that I've done in my life. But most people would say, as long as my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then God will accept me. I may not be perfect, but it's not as if I murdered anybody, which is funny. Because in the immediately following paragraph, Jesus will say, well, actually, we'll get to that next week. But you see, then comes the real shocker. And it, it is hard to recreate how stunned 
people would have felt when they heard Jesus utter these words for the very first time. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus said those words, they must have startled people like a bolt of lightning out of a blue sky. Because what is Jesus talking about? The word righteousness is a very religious term, but it's basically a relational term. So to be righteous means that you're in right relationship with God and you act in accordance with that relationship. So righteousness is a relational word. Now, the force of Jesus' words may be lost on us because if we're at all familiar with the New Testament, we know, don't we? Oh, we know. The scribes and the Pharisees are the bad guys. Like, Jesus is always criticizing the scribes and the Pharisees. But no, if you actually lived in Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees were not the bad guys. They were the best of guys. They were the best people. And that is why people would have been absolutely stunned by what Jesus had to say. So let me put it in terms that build off of what I said last week when we looked at the passage where Jesus describes the salt of the earth and the light of the world. See, the scribes and the Pharisees were not like the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the ones who assimilated to the broader culture. They're the ones that compromised their beliefs and practices in order to collaborate with the Romans. And they were just in it for themselves. They were opportunists. And the scribes and the Pharisees were not like the zealots because the zealots attacked the broader culture. They were trying to overthrow the Romans who were occupying Jerusalem, and they weren't afraid to use violence to carry out their purposes. And the scribes and the Pharisees were also not like the Essenes. The Essenes withdrew from the broader society. They hid out in caves because they didn't want to be compromised or polluted by the world around them. But you see, the scribes and the Pharisees, unlike all the rest, were the ones who took the Bible seriously. Who were they? They were the ones who were trying to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. They were the good guys. They were the best of people. And yet Jesus has the audacity to say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the best of all people, then you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, how could he possibly say that? It would be like saying, unless you're better than the lead pastors and the Bible teachers, you're doomed, which is a sermon that an atheist would love. But that's a sermon for another day. The question is, what is the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees? And the ultimate problem is that they were using the wrong standard. See, it's not as if uh, the scribes and the Pharisees sort of kept like 230 of God's commandments and Jesus is saying, well, a true Christian would keep 240. No, he's saying that the righteousness that God requires of us is not merely different in degree, but it's different in kind. It's altogether different. It's in a category all its own. So you see, the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees is that they were using the wrong standard to see how they measured up. Have you ever heard the joke about the two brothers who went into business with one another? There were two brothers who had a lot of riz, as the kids would say. And they go into business together, and they make a lot of money. But they're despicable people. They make all their money by lying and cheating and stealing, by embezzling funds and extorting money from helpless people. But then eventually, one of these brothers dies. 
And the other brother attends to the funeral arrangements and lines up a pastor to give the memorial service. And, and the brother asks the pastor, when you speak about my brother, would you please refer to him as a saint? Well, the pastor knew who this man was, and he was a person of integrity, so he's like, I don't know about that. We'll see. So the day of the funeral arrives. The time comes for the pastor to address those who have assembled there. And he says, this man who is, whose body is lying before us today was evil. He was corrupt. He was dishonest. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. See, the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees is that they were using the wrong standard. True Christian righteousness exceeds legalistic righteousness because it's deeper. It's deeper. The righteousness of the, the scribes and the Pharisees was only skin deep. You see, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they focused on outward actions, they would say, well, as long as I don't commit murder or as long as I don't sleep with anyone that isn't my spouse, well, then I've kept the law. But Jesus says, no, true Christian righteousness exceeds legalistic righteousness because it's not merely a matter of outward actions. It's a matter of the heart. God cares about our thoughts, our motives, our intentions, and our desires. Or the scribes and Pharisees focused on the letter of the law. They would say, well, as long as I give my ex-wife a certificate of divorce, I'm good to go. But Jesus says, no, true Christian righteousness is not merely a matter of the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. You weren't supposed to get divorced in the first place, he says. Or thirdly, the scribes and the Pharisees focused on avoiding the negative. They would say, well, as long as I don't tell a lie, I've done what God requires. But Jesus says, no, don't you see the whole, the whole purpose of God's law, his instruction in how to live life is not merely to avoid the negative, but to pursue the positive. It's not just about avoiding lying, it's about pursuing truthfulness. So do you see why Jesus' word should make you worried? Do you feel the tension? Do you see how rather than minimizing God's standards, Jesus is maximizing his standards. He's, he's maximizing God's demand. True Christian righteousness exceeds legalistic righteousness because it's deeper, far deeper. And then that brings us back to the question with which we began. If that's true, is the Sermon on the Mount really possible? Is it realistic? Is it practicable? Is it attainable for everyone or is it not attainable for anyone? Which one is it? And you've got to see, you've got to feel that tension between the ideal and reality or else you're going to miss the point. But if you do see that tension, if you feel that tension between the ideal that Jesus lays out and the reality of our lives, if we feel it, if we see it, if we sense it, there's a very good chance we're going to fall into one of two opposing but equally disastrous pitfalls unless we see the hidden promise in the Sermon on the Mount. See, the first mistake that we could make is to say that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is issuing a new law. 
He's the new Moses, the new lawgiver, and he's giving us a, a new law, which is even more intense than the old law. And if you try real hard, if, if you work at it, then you can attain this righteousness through your own efforts, on your own steam. But of course, that would throw us right back into salvation by works or salvation by attitude because we've got to have not only the right actions but the right motives, intentions, and desires. But that can't possibly be what Jesus is talking about here because if that were true, there wouldn't be hope for any of us. I mean, the irony is that there are people like Thomas Jefferson, like Leo Tolstoy, others who have gone before us who have said, well, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't need Jesus, but I live by the Sermon on the Mount. It's quite feasible. It's attainable for us. That's what I live by. To which I want to respond to them by asking, have you really read it? Because just try. Just, just try to live the Sermon on the Mount. For even a day, it will crush you into the ground. So the first mistake is to say, well, Jesus is issuing a new law which we need to keep in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the opposite mistake is to say, rather than giving us a new law, Jesus is saying there's no law. They would say, well, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to show us our utter inability. It's, it's holding up this ideal to, to reveal to us that we can't possibly ever do anything that Jesus is saying. So rather than being inside everybody's reach, it's outside everybody's reach. There's no way that you could ever keep it. And the whole point, therefore, is simply to throw you back on God's grace. And when that happens, do you know what people say? They, they twist and they distort uh, the words of the Apostle Paul and they say, well, see, Jesus fulfilled, he fulfilled the scriptures on our behalf and therefore there's nothing for us to do. We're not under law, we're under grace. And when that teaching gets twisted, what do people say? They would say, well, don't be a prude. You're under grace, don't be a prude. It doesn't matter how you treat other people. It doesn't matter how you use your words. It doesn't matter how you use your money. It doesn't matter how you conduct yourself sexually in the privacy of your own home or within your own imagination. Don't be a prude. There's no law now that guides our lives. But no, if you think that God's grace gives you license to live your life any way you think, then you haven't heard it. You haven't experienced it at all because God's grace always leads. God's grace always leads to a transformed life. You become an entirely new person as a result of his grace. He hasn't given us his law as a means to salvation. We can't do that. But he has given us his law as a guide to life because he knows how life works best. So his law, his instruction in the scriptures, right down to the smallest letter, is meant to provide us with the tracks that our life is supposed to run on. So what do we do then with the Sermon on the Mount? Is it possible to live the Sermon on the Mount? And the answer is yes, it's possible to live it out, but only, only if we rely on the resources of another. See, the only way you can live the Sermon on the Mount is if you see the hidden promise lying in the word fulfill. There's a hidden promise lying in that word fulfill. See, what, is, what does this mean? Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So what does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the Hebrew scriptures? Well, yes, it means that everything in the Old Testament will be accomplished. 
Every prophecy will come true. Every dream will be realized. Every command will be obeyed. Every warning, every threat will be carried out. But there's more to it than that. And that's the secret to living out the Sermon on the Mount. So let me close with a story taken from Luke 24. The risen Jesus appears to two unnamed disciples who are traveling from the city of Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus. And they don't recognize Jesus at first. It's now the third day since he was brutally executed on a Roman cross. And they're obviously depressed and they're confused. And they can't hide their disappointment. They say, well, we, we thought Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But now he's dead. And what good is Jesus to us if he's dead? And you know how Jesus responds to them? He says, Oh, foolish ones. Foolish. In other words, if you knew the Bible, you would have known this is the way it was supposed to be. Oh, foolish ones, and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. For it was necessary that the Christ should enter, should suffer before he enters into glory. And then, do you know what Jesus does? Luke tells us, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See, Jesus takes these two disciples through a tour of the Old Testament. He says, it's all about me. And you see, that's what changes everything. The Bible is ultimately not about you and what you need to do in order to make God happy with you. No, the Bible is all about Jesus and what he has done by sheer grace in order to put you in right relationship with God. And now you live your life simply in grateful response to all that he's done. The Bible's not about you, it's about him. All of it, right down to every word. The smallest little letter, the smallest little dash on a stroke of the pen. And that's why the Apostle Paul can say that all the promises of God, all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus. And you know why that's so important? What was one of the greatest promises that God made in the Hebrew Scriptures? In the past, God gave us his law, which was an incredible gift. Because through his law, God is giving us instruction in how life works best. He's showing us how to live our lives. There's only one problem with the law, and the problem is that the law is weak. It tells us what to do, but it doesn't give us the power to actually do it. But God said, don't worry, I've got an answer for that because I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And when I establish this new covenant with you, he says through the prophet Jeremiah, I'm going to write the law on your hearts. It's not just going to be something external to you, it's going to be something internal to you. It's not going to just be something that you know, it's going to be something that you love. And he says through the prophet Ezekiel that one day through that new covenant, he's going to trade in our stony hearts and give us soft hearts that love the Lord and want to do what he says. And he says that he, in fact, is going to put a new heart within us. He's going to put a, a new spirit within us so that he will cause us to walk in accordance with his ways. See, not only will we know his law, we will love it and we'll follow it. We'll delight in it because we know that this is the key to our happiness as human beings. 
So when Jesus fulfills all of Scripture, what has he done? He's fulfilled that promise. And that's why we can never draw, uh, drive a wedge between the Old Testament or the New. We can never pit Moses against Jesus or law against grace. Jesus shows us how to read the entirety of the Scriptures. And yes, he demands all. He demands all of us. He doesn't let up. He doesn't reduce the bar. But you see, the key is to realize that because he has fulfilled all the Scriptures, whatever he demands, his grace will supply. So is the Sermon on the Mount humanly possible? No, it's not. But it is divinely possible. See, we don't have the power to live out the Sermon on the Mount on our own strength, but we do have the power to begin to live it out on the strength of another. And that is what we celebrate here at this table. Jesus fulfilled all of Scripture so that we might live the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus died. Jesus died so that you and I might live the Sermon on the Mount. Let's get started.